This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Overcomers, God's Vision for You to Thrive in an Age of Anxiety and Outrage, written and narrated by pastor and best-selling author Matt Chandler, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Hello, this is Russell Moore. You're listening to my podcast, and this is a Cross and the Jukebox episode. We examine uh, music and culture and religion and roots through the grid of country music and some other forms of musical expression from time to time as well. Now, most of you, when you listen to this part of the podcast, are normally accustomed to me talking about some old country, maybe some Hank Williams or some Roy Acuff or some Loretta Lynn, and often some outlaw country, some Willie Nelson, some Waylon Jennings, and some Chris Christopherson and so forth. But we're not limited by that. I listen to all sorts of music, and we're going to talk about all sorts of music here. And one of the things that I like to do is to occasionally look in to see what's the number one song that's playing on my Spotify most played playlist and so forth. And the one that has dominated for the last several weeks is the song Harmony Hall by the indie pop group Vampire Weekend. It was written in 2019 by Ezra Koenig with Vampire Weekend. And the reason that I was drawn to the song, although I did not notice it in 2019 when it came out, but I... I heard the song playing in the background, I I think on a television program, but I'm not sure what it was. And I thought to myself, well, what, what is that? I love that tune. And uh, then I went and actually listened to the song. I found it, uh, listened to the song. And as I listened to it, it was not just the tune, which is infectious. And and the tune is this sort of um, exuberant uh, kind of, a, kind of a, a, a beat to it. But the lyrics are kind of dark. Uh, well, they're very dark. But I found myself relating both to the tune and to the lyrics really, really, in a really concentrated sort of way. And so I kept listening to that song over and over and over again. And then I happened upon uh, an interview, and I mentioned this in the More to the Point newsletter, for those of you who get that every Monday, about listening to this podcast that was new to me called Song Exploder. And they were interviewing Ezra Koenig about this song, Harmony Hall. And what that podcast does is to to take a song, um, I also listened to one that they did with uh, Cat Stevens uh, about uh, Father and Son, that song that he did. Uh, and and how how that came about. It was also fascinating. But in this one, they took the song Harmony Hall, and what they do is to say, why did you write this? How did you write this? How did this come about um, uh, being produced and so forth? And so Ezra Koenig just talked about what Harmony Hall is about and how it came together in his mind. And one of the things that he said was at the root of Harmony Hall was thinking about some of these utopian communities that uh, had existed in American life, and that sometimes there would be a place there uh, called Harmony Hall. Now, when he said that, I immediately thought about New Harmony, Indiana, uh, which is a place I used to drive out to New Harmony 
when I lived in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, all the time. It was a site of, um, I think, two different sorts of utopian communal living attempts back in the 19th century, both of which ended disastrously, as those things always do. I think one of them uh, was sort of a free love kind of polyamorous thing, and the other was a um, was a strict, strictly ascetic, no romance or sexual relations at all. Both of those uh, fell apart for all sorts of reasons that you can imagine. But this place, New Harmony, Indiana, it's 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 strange because it's a rural community, and so it. it it has a feel of rural Indiana, and yet it also sort of attracts all of these kind of new agey uh, thinkers and so forth. So you'll go, uh, you'll go downtown, you'll go into one of the coffee shops or bookstores, and they'll have all of these uh, books by uh, Edgar Casey or other kind of occultic uh, leaders, and they have a a monument uh, downtown to sort of the temple of all religions, where they sort of try to try to uh, synergistically put together a cross with a star of David, with an Islamic uh, crescent, and all the all of the the various different uh, symbols of religion. So it's that sort of a vibe in that uh, community. It's really interesting to see and to think about the uh, the back history of it and the dark uh, back history of it. So he was thinking about. He said utopian communities and how these things tend to fall apart. But he was also thinking about plantations because he said he went to a wedding uh, with his girlfriend, I think in Antigua, and uh, said uh, this wedding was taking place at a plantation and it had uh, on that plantation a Harmony Hall. And it was a beautiful setting. And he started noticing the, the, the disharmony there between the beauty of this plantation and and the beauty of the wedding with what this plantation is about. Now, the, the plantation was a place that oppressed enslaved human beings. And there was just this, this lack of consonance between those two things, which as soon as he started talking about that, explained for me why you would have Sort of this uh, this lack of of uh, consonance between the lyrics and the music. If you'll just listen to the tune. You would think, oh, this is a this is a happy sort of jump out of bed. Maybe a a 1990s sitcom uh, theme song or whatever. Uh, but better done than that. But but along that vein, and then you listen to the lyrics, and they're they're revealing something really dark. Well, I think that's intentional because he's saying that there's a beauty that is ignoring evil, and there's a hall called harmony where there is no harmony. There's supposed to be harmony, but underneath all of that, there's really wickedness, and there's really dissension, and there's really insecurity and everything else. So if you haven't listened to this song, might be good to stop and listen to it and then resume back up uh, with us. Um, But in this song, one of the key aspects of it is in the chorus— um, in which uh, the song says, anger uh, wants a voice, voices want to sing. Now, I think that's key. I, I was thinking, as I was sort of reflecting on those lyrics of the philosopher Byung-Chul Han, who um, he wrote a little book called uh, In the Swarm about digital life and about what happens to people in terms of um, this this 
drive to sort of be absorbed into the social media hive mind. And he says something really interesting talking about digital outrage. That's what he says. Waves of outrage mobilize and bundle attention very efficiently. However, their fluidity and volatility make them unsuited to shaping public discourse or public space. And that's because they're too uncontrollable, inconstant, ephemeral, and amorphous for that. They well up abruptly and they dissipate just as soon. And he goes on to say, enraged citizens, even though they are citizens, do not demonstrate concern for the whole of the social body so much as for themselves. And for this reason, outrage quickly dissipates, end quote. Now, what he goes on to argue is to say, notice how in the Iliad, for instance, in some of these ancient epics, there's rage that will be talked about. In the Iliad, from the very beginning, there's an undercurrent of rage, but it's different than digital outrage. And this is why. He says, because if you think about the Iliad, for instance, is meant to be uh, poetry. It's meant to be sung in, in, in one sense. And he says, quote, digital outrage cannot be sung. It admits neither action nor narration. Instead, it is an effective condition devoid of the power to act. It generates no future, end quote. Now, this is something that I think that this song is, is tapping into. Anger wants a voice. Voices want to sing. Uh, but what's the end result of all of that singing? You, you can't hear anything. The voices harmonize till they can't hear anything. And uh, that, that's exactly the, the point here is that there is, if you, if you contrast sort of the song of uh, Genesis 1, the narration that God is doing uh, on the first day, on the second day, there was evening and morning. The third day, there's this narration that is taking place. There's a delight that is taking place in each of the days of creation um, that later shows up in the poetry of the Psalms, uh, for instance, even in the, the poetry that wells up in, in Moses, in the Song of Moses, and that uh, shows up in prophets such as Isaiah. And you have, even when you have this language of anger, or even conflict. So you'll have um, in Isaiah, for instance, there'll be the language of fighting against the twisting serpent, against the, the, the chaos. But there's narration to it. There's, a, there's an end goal to it. There's a future to it. And you think of the, uh, the, the language of a poema that is being used in Ephesians 2 for the, the life of the believer through the Holy Spirit. That, that also has narration, it has a goal, it has a future. But digital outrage and sort of mob outrage isn't rooted in that. It's not, it's not rooted in a narration, it's rooted instead, as Byung-Chul Han puts it, in this affective state. It's, it's limbic. It's not coming from the heart, the way that um, the way that the Bible speaks of the heart as the the psyche, the core of of one's existence, it's not rooted in the mind in terms of uh, 
reason that is that it, that is turned uh, toward uh, an end. It's instead just coming out of that limbic reaction to something, and that's one of the reasons why you'll notice Jesus's lack of outrage at almost every point in the Gospels. It's striking, so that when you actually do see him angry uh, with the uh, temple, for instance, the, the, what we call the cleansing of the temple, when he becomes angry at the fig tree for not to bearing fruit, or when he speaks of the, uh, of the religious leaders as whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. It's, it's striking because it's so different from his, his usual way of uh, speaking and relating throughout the Gospels. Even when everybody else is panicking and everybody else is, is outraged, he is not. And, and why is that the case? Well, I think it's because Ephesians 1.10, he is part of a plan for the fullness of time to sum up all things in heaven and earth in him. And also because the rage of man, as uh, James puts it, does not produce the righteousness of God. Jesus is not driven by limbic system. He's driven by the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is driven toward a narrative, which is the narrative we see outlined uh, in, in, in Scripture, bringing heaven and earth together uh, through the, the shed blood and the resurrected life of Jesus, handing all things over to the Father so that God can be all in all. There's narration. There's a plan there. But what we often see is not that at all. Instead, you see the same thing that Ezra Koenig is talking about in these lyrics. Anger wants a voice, voices want to sing, voices harmonize. There's a, there's a binding power of shared outrage, short term. Uh, that, that's one of the reasons why often you can have uh, in, say, a church split, people can be bound to one another because they have a common sense of uh, opposition to some other group in the congregation. Uh, it's one of the reasons why you can see political movements, uh, especially so often in our day, that where people are bound together, not because they believe in the same sort of program, whether that's uh, you know the New Deal or whether that's uh, tax cuts and limited government, strong national defense. It, it's not the program. It's the shared sense of opposition to the other people, uh, the, the other party. Well, that can give you short-term a sort of uh, bond. I mean, you can even see it uh, in a workplace. You know, there will always be a group of people getting together in the break room that are finding a bond with one another because they're talking about uh, gossip about somebody else. Uh, or about, about about how awful the place that they're working is, or whatever. But they have a sense of, of outrage and opposition that's binding them together. Now, the problem with that is again, it doesn't it doesn't lead to coherence for all sorts of reasons. It's limbic. So it, when that's the case, then the heretic hunters, whether these are religious heretic hunters or secular heretic hunters, the heretic hunters tend to keep hunting heresies, and they need the heresies to, to hunt. <laughs> and so they will keep narrowing the boundaries more and more and more so that they can have this reason to live or, or reason to be bound together in a community of hunting the heretics. When the heretics are gone, we're finding another group. 
And so we just keep redefining what orthodoxy is so that we can keep redefining what heresy is. Uh, that often happens. And it doesn't have to happen in a religious community. It could happen in a secular community. It could happen in, in any sort of community that you can imagine. So these voices, they harmonize until they can't hear anything. So there is a, a closing out of the people in this anger that's, that's being given a voice to where they're not able to even hear reason, conscience, individuality, any of those things. Now, that's an important point because often in Scripture, one of the things that we're seeing is that unity is good when unity is being defined in terms of the gospel. So Jesus is bringing about unity by uh, taking Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free, barbarian, Scythian, everybody, and and fitting them together into one new man, as the, the Bible puts. He tears down the dividing wall, and he creates the oneness of the Spirit that comes in Jesus Christ. That's good. But unity in and of itself is not always good in Scripture. I mean, the the Tower of Babel is unified. And what does God do? He tears apart that unity. Uh, The Pharisees and Herod and Rome are all unified at the end of the Gospels. But that unity is not a good thing. One would think that that one could say, well, look at this. Uh, Even people who naturally are at odds with one another are coming together. Yes, but what are they coming together around? They're coming together around listing Jesus as a, a, a potential terrorist threat uh, and as a blasphemer under the curse of, of God. So that's not a good unity. So this song is sort of talking about that kind of uh, unity. The voices are harmonizing, but they can't hear anything, as well as coming back to that Uh, imagery of the hall, of Harmony Hall. It bears witness, he says. So there's this inanimate object of Harmony Hall that's bearing witness here that a place you thought was dignified includes now wicked snakes. There's wicked snakes there in a place you thought was dignified. Now, there's a lot of stuff going on there. And one of those things is uh, the kind of disillusioning effect uh, it can have when someone sees an institution that was uh, previously revered and uh, they see the dark underbelly that takes place there. When I was, you know, very young and serving as uh, on the staff of the United States Congressman, one of the things that was striking to me is the fact that I had such reverence for my congressman before I came to work for him. And after I came to work for him, I had even more because I was able to see him behind the scenes and the behind the scenes person was the same as the uh, in front of the camera person. But I would notice that there would be a lot of people who were working for other politicians who had a very different experience. Uh, they, they came in and had these idealistic notions about who they were working for and what they were doing. 
And they came away saying, eh, the guy I'm working for, he's kind of a creep or he's kind of a fraud or he's kind of a, a poser and so forth. I never had that experience there, but I could feel the sense of deflation that was taking place in their in their minds when they when they saw this. And and this happens, it can happen in almost any uh, arena of life. And especially when it's not just that the institution that you trusted doesn't meet the ideals that you had for it, but when in fact you start to realize, wait a minute, this is uh, th- this is something bad. I mean, I, <laughs> my friend David French uh, recommended one night. I don't even know what we were talking about, but recommended this little clip from um, Monty Python uh, clip um, that has these uh, these Nazis standing around during World War II purported to be Nazis, although they have British accents. And, and the one is saying, are we the baddies? And he starts saying, you know, I've noticed that our, our, our uniforms have skulls on them. We even look this up on, on YouTube. Are, are we the baddies? And I've known a lot of people who have, uh, have said to themselves, now, wait a minute, what is it actually that I am doing here? So you can listen, uh, for instance, to some of the, the people who were involved in Scientology, uh, for instance, and who uh, some of them you can see who were out talking about how, uh, how life-transformative Scientology was, but then they're starting to see the way that people are treated on the inside, and they start to have this nagging fear, am I on the wrong side of this? Is, is this something that is, that is wrong? And it's, it's here in this institution that they thought was uh, going to actually channel their ideals in a positive direction, and it's, and it's not. Now, that's not alien to the Bible at all. You can think about, for instance, in uh, the book of Ezekiel, uh, you have those who remain back in Jerusalem really doing two things. Uh, on the one hand, they do this, um, this thing where because of the institution there and because the institution was instituted by God, uh, so that the prophet says, don't, don't say the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. I think because the temple of the Lord is there, then that means that they're automatically righteous before God see that coming later on in the New Testament as well. So there's a sense of we're righteous, we're not like the other nations, we're righteous, and and maybe even uh, we're righteous because we're not in exile the way that uh, other people are. But then also, a we're judged. Uh, we're already judged. God doesn't see us. God isn't uh, present here. So then let's do whatever it is that we want to do. There's both implications that sometimes twist together in Ezekiel. And one of the things that takes place in Ezekiel 8 is God showing Ezekiel kind of behind the scenes in the temple, the idolatrous abominations that are there in the temple and says, you're, you're going to see worse than this because what they're saying to one another is God doesn't see this. God doesn't know this. And so it's the idolatry, but it's not just the idolatry. It's also the injustice. So it's not just that they're 
replacing other, uh, they're replacing God with other gods. It's also that they're executing violence, Ezekiel 8.17 says, against others. So you have the idolatry and the injustice at the same time. Both of those things require a certain kind of unity and harmony. Uh, you have to have a kind of unity to come together and, says, and say, everybody, give me your earrings. We're going to melt them down into a, a golden calf. And you have to have a kind of unity to say, uh, we're going to oppress uh, the widow or the sojourner or the orphan. Uh, we're going to uh, we're going to extort people, or we're going to uh, we're going to persecute the poor. You, you have to have a kind of unity, if only in terms of someone not standing up and saying this is wrong. So the the harmony is there to maintain both of those things, and uh, the the lyrics say wicked snakes. Now I have to tell you, when I read this the first time, I thought you know, it's kind of a cliche. He's using very rich imagery elsewhere in the in these lyrics, but wicked snakes is is kind of a cliche. We we hear that all the time. Oh, that person's a snake. Oh, you know, down at the DMV where I used to work, it's all a bunch of snakes down there and so forth. But the more I thought about it, the more I asked, well, why is it a cliche? And and often cliches are cliches. But precisely because they're so evocative and because they're so true. And in this case, that's the case. I mean, every, virtually every culture that we know about going all the way back in recorded history has had this imagery of the snake in terms of being generative. So you, you have a lot of snakes as uh, fertility idols in, in various cultures or healing a snake is, is bringing about healing or wisdom or life and rebirth because the snake sheds its skin and so forth. And then you also have, going all the way back, this sense of the snake as predator. Snake is, there's a, a kind of normal, natural human repulsion uh, from snakes, you know, with a lot of people, even if they're, and I include myself in a lot of people, even if they're harmless snakes, it doesn't matter. There's a visceral sort of uh, reaction to the snakes. Well, why is that the case? I think it's the case because if you notice what Genesis 3 does with the serpent, you have the serpent who is more cunning than all the beasts of the field, uh, the text says. So what you don't have is a um, an out front sort of danger and predator. Instead, you have someone who is using the power of cunning, of hiddenness, of hypocrisy, of double use of words in order to prey upon uh, the man and the woman there in Genesis chapter 3 through deception and then later through accusation. Okay, that's the, the sense of snake uh, actually shows up here because it is such a good metaphor because it's embedded in something that we all know at sort of a primal level to be true. And so the, the lyrics say, I don't want to live like this, but I don't want to die. Now, again, that's, that's language that sounds to me 
a lot like Romans chapter 7, that the thing that I don't want to do, I do, and the thing I want to do, I don't do, and oh, wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from this body of death? Now, that's not what he's, what Ezra Koenig is referring to here. What he's referring to instead of something a little more mundane than that, as he talks about it in, in the interview, is that there's not a life apart from these institutions. A lot, a lot of times the power the institution has is that one cannot imagine a life uh, apart from it. Uh, and yet, I don't want to live like this. So it actually is really similar to what's taking place in the wandering in the wilderness in, uh, in the Pentateuch. You have the people that Moses has led out of Egypt. They don't want to they don't want to live like that. They don't want to live to be slaves. They, they were crying out to God, and yet when they get into the wilderness, they start to say, well, we wish we were back in Egypt because at least we had food and water, they were saying. At least, at least we didn't have uh, what we have now because Moses has brought us out into the wilderness in order to, that we may die uh, and our children. I don't want to live like this. I don't want to die. There's a sense of disillusionment and also a sense of fatality, of fatalism. There's nothing that can be, it's fatalism and fatality actually here. Uh, so it's it's that sense of, of uh, the anger at the institution. But then he goes on in the second uh, verse and talks about those who are in power on the inside. So he starts talking about the uh, nervousness and the insecurity of uh, the one who is a money lender. And when I heard that initially, I thought, oh, well, Ezra Koenig is Jewish and he's talking about these sort of anti-Semitic uh, tropes that would show up so often about Jewish people as um, controlling finances. I mean, you can, you can see this all the time. I get this with, uh, uh, oh, well, you're funded by George Soros. You know, well, what is, I mean, haven't got any money from George Soros? What are you talking about? And then you realize, well, it's because every generation has some sort of conspiracy theory that says, well, powerful, shadowy Jewish people are controlling everything sort of behind the scenes. And you can see that in, um, in sort of these conspiracy theory editorial cartoons going back as far as we can see of the shadowy Jewish person who's uh, in the background with, um, with puppetry and you know dollar signs everywhere and, and so forth. So I thought that's what he's referring to. And he says in this interview that he really wasn't talking about anti-Semitism, although because he's Jewish, he understands sort of um, uh, sort of what it what it feels like to have anti-Semitism directed toward uh, one. But that's not what he says he was really talking about. What he's really talking about is is this. He's, I'm just going to quote exactly what he says. When I think about the phrase talking about the crooked hands of a money lender. When I think about the phrase, it just makes me think about the past and shame and how sometimes people in power, regardless of their background or ethnicity, even though they have more power than they used to, sometimes because of trauma or shame, make decisions that are based in fear. 
And in some ways, that's one of the drivers of these vicious cycles that we have as people. People are attracted to power often because they lacked power at some point in their life. Why wouldn't you be attracted to power if you didn't have it? But when you've been traumatized and made to feel fearful, it's no surprise that even with power, you're still seeing yourself in that shameful, fearful way. And it's a tough combo, power plus fear, end quote. Now, he's really on to something here, I think, uh, about uh, the way that uh, power often comes about from shame and trauma and then perpetuates the, the shame and the trauma. That's that's demonstrably the case. I mean, I remember uh, it really made sense to me when I read an article a couple years ago talking about fame and saying uh, one of the ways that you can know if you're a parent, whether or not your child is well-balanced is based upon whether or not that child wants to be famous. Because uh, this this, uh, article says the desire for fame is really the desire for kindness. Because what people think is, if people know me, um, I'm a celebrity, you know, literally celebrated, then they're going to extend me kindness in advance from strangers. And of course, the article says that's not the way that it works at all. All. Look at the royal family. Look at child actors that we see all over the place. Instead, fame often draws in the sort of person who needs that kind of um, that kind of affirmation from people who don't know him or her. That makes that person especially vulnerable to the life that fame brings. And power is similar. Uh, often you will have people who feel weak and they, they feel powerless and they assume the answer to that is to gain power. And so you can see this with a lot of people who end up going into uh, political life, d- dreaming of power to sort of answer that feeling of, of, um, of powerlessness that they have. And, and it can show up in, in multiple different ways. And often, unless you have people who know what's going on and know how to check that and know how to work through it, then you often have uh, people who are sort of uh, carrying out their shame and trauma upon other people in ways that are completely oblivious uh, to them. That, that's one of the reasons why sometimes I, I've sort of noticed being in, in ministry this long that often the meanest and most judgmental uh, people who are always searching for uh, other people to criticize and to tear down, often it, it eventually comes out that there's some awful scandal that's being hidden there. And they're sort of working the shame out of that in ways that are destructive to other people rather than bringing that into the light of uh, Jesus Christ into the community um, in order to work through it. And so when people see this power plus fear combination and they see it up close, often what you have is uh, the sense of people becoming disillusioned, uh, a sense of a sense of cynicism when they realize, well, wait a minute, the 
institutions that I thought were the answer to everything have have turned out to be corrupt underneath. And the uh, even when I gain power, it doesn't answer anything because I'm I'm still just sort of burdened with all this uh, insecurity. Doesn't answer it. So what's the answer to all of that for people? Often it's cynicism. And uh, I think if all that you listened to was Harmony Hall, uh, and I think every one of us can identify with Harmony Hall. You've, you've all worked in, worked in a place where maybe you're working in a grocery store and the uh, assistant manager that you revered and you thought was a, a great guy turned out to be uh, actually stealing from the cash registers at the at the end of the day. Um, or you've been part of a ministry where you've seen the ministry leader uh, later on revealed to have been doing some horrible things. Uh, or you've been in a in a family where you sort of grow up and you realize, well, wait a minute, my parents, weren't the people that I thought they were, or my grandparents weren't the people that I thought they were. That can lead to a kind of cynicism that says, I'm not going to, I'm not going to be able to trust anybody again. And you can understand why, right? I mean, that's easy to understand why. But what Jesus does, I mean, notice the attitude that Jesus has, even in Matthew 23, which is probably the harshest um, moment of, of Jesus's uh, life that we have recorded in scripture, where he's, he's speaking against the religious leaders. He says in verse two, now listen though to what they teach you because they sit in the seat of Moses. So Jesus isn't disregarding uh, all of the institutions simply because there's some corruption there. He says there's a goodness to the institution. Uh, Jesus continues to go up to Jerusalem. He he talks to Nicodemus as a religious leader and uh, and affirms him in some ways. Aren't aren't you supposed to know this as a teacher in Israel? Now, what, what he's doing is saying there is such a thing as a teacher in Israel. So he's affirming uh, institutions in many ways while at the same time saying the institutions themselves are not going to be able to deliver you. There's no cynicism there. And uh, the Apostle Paul does the same thing. Later on in the book of Acts, when uh, when he's hit uh, while uh, not able to see by the high priest, and he, he calls him a whitewashed wall, very similar language to what Jesus does in Matthew 23. Um, when he's told, you've said that to a high priest, he apologizes. I did not know that was the high priest, and, and I should not uh, speak evil of a ruler of our people. He apologizes and then continues to bear witness. So he doesn't say, well, because the institution is there, that means that uh, that the institution controls the word of God and stands over the word of God and is uncritiquable by the word of God. He doesn't do that. But he also doesn't turn around and say, all institutions are garbage. We can't trust any of them. We can't trust anybody. Doesn't do that either. So instead, what the scripture does is to come in and tell us the truth about the way that sin works, which means that sin is 
um, is a part of every aspect of human life post-fall. That's what originally, at least, was meant by the idea of total depravity. Uh, That's really confusing language because often when people hear total depravity, they think absolute depravity. Everything that you do is depraved. Um, And sometimes even people who hold to uh, such views, not just people who don't caricaturing them, sometimes people who do hold to them uh, articulate them in ways that sound like that, sounds like that. But it's not what that means. What it means is that every aspect of your life is influenced by sin, not just your actions, but your thoughts, not just your thoughts, but your emotions, um, not just your emotions, but your conscience. I mean, so what, what that's doing is saying, essentially, there is no place inside of you that you can go and say, here is the place in me that is free from the fall. Can't do that. Can't say, well, my mind is untouched by the fall, so I'm going to trust my mind, or my heart's untouched by the fall, so I'm going to trust my heart. It's no. Uh, And every aspect of human life and civilization is also good and yet influenced by the fall. So you can't find an institution where you're going to say, this is a safe harbor from corruption. You can't find it. Now, that doesn't mean, though, <laughs> that you say, well, all institutions are corrupt. Therefore, we just have to live with the corruption. No, in the same way that you can't say, well, you know, everybody's a sinner, so might as well just bear with our serial killer we've got living in the house here. No, no, that's not what that means. You have higher degrees of corruption in uh, in institutions in the same way that you do in terms of human beings. And there are going to be some institutions that you're going to say, I can see some of the sinful patterns that exist in this institution. And that means that we're going to have to work really hard to reform them. Or you're going to say, I can see in this institution, I'm in a place where I shouldn't be, a place that's that's dangerous. You know, you don't say on the one hand, well, my church has people who don't display all the fruit of the Spirit, therefore I'm going to leave. But you also don't say, well, you know, maybe I can turn this Scientology around. You know, you don't do that either. Uh, there's a great deal of wisdom in knowing this. But also, there's a word of good news that I think doesn't show up in Harmony Hall except in the tune. And that is some of you have been hurt in sort of harmonizing situations, voices harmonize, whether it's institutions or communities or schools or neighborhoods or churches or political parties or whatever it is that you've been hurt by. And you feel really lonely. And sometimes, and I get this, there's a sense of I want to, uh, the only way that I can protect myself is by having a lack of community because community harmed me. Therefore, I'm not going to find community anywhere else. And what I would say is, no, uh, find, you can find community. And God's designed you to be in community, certainly not 
a community that's abusive of you, spiritually, physically, mentally, emotionally, whatever way. Um, and, and maybe the community that you're finding is not going to be the same as the community that you had before. So maybe you were in a political movement and you say, um, I, I, I built my whole identity and all my friendships around that. And then I came to be disillusioned by it. Well, the, the answer is not necessarily go find another political movement, but it's find a community sometimes that is far away from uh, politics. Or if you're in a particular line of work and you've experienced um, a, a horrific uh, time there, and it's kind of a harmony hall sort of business that on the outside gives this this sense of everything's fine on the inside is churning around with all sorts of uh, wickedness. Well, you don't necessarily have to uh, go and continue finding community in that same kind of work. You can find community sometimes in something that's completely different uh, from that. And you also don't have to have a sense of uh, fatalism about, well, everywhere that I go, I'm going to find a Harmony Hall. Everywhere that I, in some sense, that's true, because everywhere you go, you are going to find beauty and you're going to find sin. That's true. But you're not going to find um, the, the same sorts of patterns that you have. Every community is not like that. And one of the ways that you can know, um, this isn't foolproof, but it's one way to know, is whether a community is telling you up front, here are the struggles and here are the, the challenges that we have, and here's how we're trying to address those things. I mean, one of the healthiest churches I was ever involved in is a church that... Um, long, long time ago. And when we visited, um, one of the leaders of the church came and said, here's where our church has been suffering. And they said, we've had a string of pastors who have been involved in uh, really public scandals that uh, hurt the church. And our problem is that we have a hard time trusting each other through that. But it was a healthy situation because they knew it. And they were saying, this isn't the way that God intended us to be. And so what we're doing is we're stepping back and saying, why do we keep calling leaders that have uh, these sorts of fatal flaws? How do we address that? And then how do we deal with the fact that we have tensions among each other and we have a lack of trust among each other? Now, the reason that that was so odd, you know, at the time, I remember thinking, I I can't believe that they're telling me this, is because it's not the way normally that you see things work. Normally, you see things work in terms of uh, marketing. Let me tell you why my organization is great. Everything's great. We're doing this, we're doing that. You know, no no grocery store is going to advertise, uh, we're having some problems with our uh, distribution systems. They're not going to do that. They're going to tell you, we've got the lowest prices in town. No car dealership is going to say, we're trying to work through the problem of some of our uh, salespeople uh, exaggerating uh, claims about these automobiles. They're not going to do that. (laughs) They're going to say, we're the best uh, automobile dealership in in the world. And often you'll see other sorts of groups that do the same thing, maybe even churches. But if you can find a community that is not, and I'm not talking about a community that is saying, well, 
here's our problems, and that's just the way we are. I'm talking about a place that says we're learning about where our points of weakness and vulnerability are, and we're asking God to show us more and more what those are, and we're trying and struggling to to be obedient in those areas. And here are the ways that we see God's grace in that. Well, you can start looking at that. Can that be faked too? Yes, sure it can. Anything can be. But you can start to have, as you're you're talking to people, you can start to see often authenticity. And you can start to see what is not hiddenness, but is out in the open. And then whatever institution has has hurt you, um, you can start to learn to trust again. Maybe not that institution, maybe not an institution like it, but you can start to trust again another group of people perhaps who aren't the same as the people that you saw before. And you can start to, to say to yourself, I don't want to live like this, but I don't want to die. And the truth of the matter is, you don't have to live like that, and you don't have to die. At least not eternally. Thanks for listening to the Cross the Jukebox. If you haven't yet, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher or Pocket Casts or wherever you listen. And if you're listening on a smartphone, tap or swipe the cover art and you'll find the show notes, including some links to stuff that can give you further information or details that you might have missed. And let me know in the comments or by email at uh, questions at russellmore.com what song you'd like for us to discuss here when we do Cross the Jukebox here on the Russell Moore Podcast. Until then, onward. This is Russell Moore. This episode was brought to you in part by the Lord of Spirits podcast. Many Christians yearn to break free of the influence of secular materialism and to understand the union of the seen and unseen worlds as made by God. What is the spiritual world like? Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.